I mean, the thing is that when you're talking about India, you're talking about the most pop populated country in the world. And you're talking about um, the largest democracy in the world. Allegedly. Uh, allegedly. Allegedly. You're um, talking to Kashmir, you have to remember <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. But, but, but in terms of figures, figures alone and numbers, we're talking about a huge country, a huge, huge country with, um, with a population of 1.2, 1.3 billion people. And yet, that particular country has uh, taken the roots of what we called four or five years ago populism, but is actually a manifestation of nationalism to the extreme. I knew you were going to say nationalism. Um, is it non-nationalism, though? It's, it's Hindutva. I mean, nationalism is fine. You, you believe in your nation. You believe in the sanctity and the sovereignty of your country. You believe in the greatness of your, of your country. That's all good. The problem with Hindu India, India as it stands right now, is that the government that's in power have been waiting 100 years to get to where they are today. Remember that this BJP government is backed by the RSS. The RSS was... RSS standing for... The Rashtriya Swemak Sangh is an organization that was formed in the 1920s, 1923, based primarily, if not just primarily, based entirely on Nazi Germany. If you look at their literature, if you look at their salute, if you look at their uniform, identical to the ideals of Nazi Germany. Okay, where do they figure in, in all of this that's happening in India today? So they believe in the Aryan race, no different to what uh, the Nazis did. They genuinely believe that they have uh, the authority, they believe they are a superior race to the extent, and this is what's worrying, that they don't just believe that the sovereignty of India lies with India. They don't just believe that the minorities don't belong in India. They believe that Nepal belongs to them and should be cleansed. They believe that Bangladesh belongs to them and should be cleansed. They believe that Pakistan belongs to them and it should be cleansed. To the extent that the, uh, the in Makkah, Haram, they believe that the Haram Sharif is the Makeshwar Mahadev Temple. That, that, that's their belief. Then, it's not yeah. me saying this, it's their own literature saying this. I wish I was making it up. In former days, when I was younger, and this is way before your days, uh, Ahmed, if, if I may. Um, I, was I, I, recall, I, recall, I recall, you know, the BJP forming the government several times. And it, it was sort of okay. In I 1991, mean, they had one MP. There's been an interesting coalescing of interests if you look at global geopolitics. So we've seen the ascendancy of China um, since the early 2000s. And we've seen not just the ascendancy of China, but also the, uh, the pariah nature of China a little bit after that. And so in steps India as a useful bulwark against China. What does that mean? That means that so long as India sets itself up as a useful staging ground, a useful, let, let's call it a useful local rival, uh, for China, proxy. that mean, yeah, proxy, yeah. Um, that means that they have a blank slate. That because the US, the UK, other NATO nations who are uh, not friendly with China and so on, they have their platforms on international uh, councils and so on, whether it's the UN or so on, where they can turn a blind eye to India. Now, if if you are an abuser, if you have the mentality of an abuser, and you know that the policeman is turning a blind eye towards you, what are you going to do? But is it as simple as that? I mean, that's, that's where I w want to get at trying to understand what's happening today. I mean, five years ago, we had Trumpism, um, you know, become an ideology, not just a, a political misstep in, in, in the United States, but an actual ideology. And 
Trumpism uh, came along the word populism. We, the very first time we uh, tried, I as a translator tried to translate populism into Arabic, I found it difficult because I hadn't come across this before. But it seems that now these, you know, these, these figures such as uh, Narendra Modi, such as Putin, such as have become sort of mainstream to to a large extent, and and that's what's what's troubling. Peaks and troughs, in my opinion. Uh, if you look at even in the um, even in the West, wherever it is in the world, you have moments of uh, um, let's say left leaning policies and politics, and then it goes towards the right wing. Um, so I think we're in a, we're in an era where the right wing have been in power for quite a long time, and it's continuing. I don't know when the left, whether it's good or bad, is is a different subject. But when the left is going to come back, uh, it seems that they've been stamped. And, and buried so far and so hard deep into the ground that it's going to take them at least another couple of decades to come back up and rival whatever's happening. But in, in, in context of what you were mentioning in, in regards to China and India comparing it, the best example is this. What are China, China doing to the Uyghurs? And the, the entire world is against it, justifiably so. What is the BJP in India doing to the Muslims? What are they doing to the Dalits, their own Hindu minority community that are considered to be lower class? What are they doing to the Christians on Christmas? Um, what are they doing to the uh, uh, to the Buddhists? So it's it's literally, as you said, it's hypocrisy. As long as they have the West or whatever the powers that be exist, have a proxy in the subcontinent that they can use against China, then uh, they can get away with anything. And the key, the reason I've pointed that out is because um like assuming that your audience is based in the uk and so on they, they need to hear this they need to understand that there's an interest a vested interest on the state level of india to propagandize uh the population in the uk to re to let, let's say it militarize um their adherents their listeners in the in india because if if they can continue um you know keeping their point of view across and solid in the uk it means that they've got that cover they need for continuing their policies in uh, in india and as uh, muzammil said it's been a hundred years in the making you know the the uh, i think it was the rss that was banned at least twice yeah under the british raj yeah. so they've they've learned you know they, they they tried to do this tactic that didn't work they got banned they got prescribed under the british raj they tried a different tactic and so on so the fact that uh, as muzammil said in the early 2000s they had one mp now they've ruled a country um, just despite you know the butcher of Gujarat, you know, speak, uh, being guilty speaking of like. tactics, um, now although we we made that comparison of China and and India, um, whether people believe this or not, you can you can do the research yourselves. But um, Zionism, what Israel do to the Palestinians, is what the uh, Indians do to Kashmiris. But leaving that aside, they draw parallels to each other. They get, they take inspiration from each other to the extent that they have uh, military training because you talked about militarizing they have military training in how to oppress subjugate and occupy people territories and ideologies uh, pop how they use propaganda another tool that is is used with as you mentioned populist leaders how they uh, 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 when you when we talk about militarization it isn't just about within the military or, or giving people guns and whatnot you see children as young as eight years old inside india that have been weaponized to the extent they're given swords and then they're given these these slogans not dissimilar to what what happened during Nazi Germany, where, okay, leave that aside for a moment. Just two days ago, a report from India, Indian News, 
showing how uh, uh, the the music scene in India is not about hip hop anymore. It's not about rapping anymore. It's not about whatever all the other genres are. I have no idea what they are. Um, it's about how you can radicalize the population against Muslims. The entire theme is anti-Muslim. The lyrics are completely anti-Muslim. I mean, we're not talking about this. The is on on state official level. Yeah, there's a there was something out in a, on a German news station. I can't remember. It's called DW. DW. Yeah, DW. Yeah, Deva, yeah. yeah, yeah. Deutsche Welle. I mean, yeah. it's uh, it's at at state pol- Now they may not they may not. So uh, this is sort of trying to um, radicalize. To, to, well, to to transform the culture, the very culture. I mean, because music is is a major element of of a nation's culture. But, I mean, once again, uh, this is absolutely incredible because of the size of India, because of the people that occupy India, and because of the impact of India. Let's not forget, we're not talking about a country that's six, seven thousand miles away. We're actually talking about a country that houses thousands of call centers that cater to our our (laughs) every need here in the UK. We're talking about a country that provides almost 60 to 70% of the population of the GCC countries put together. Uh, I mean, it's a country with reach. It's not just a country that is, you know, has 1.3 billion people. But you have to remember, they've played the long game. They've played the long game for decades, knowing full well, you mentioned the GCC. Uh, initially, uh, when when uh, Dubai or the Arab Emirates was being formed, the Emirates airline, for example, was not created by other it was created by other Muslim nations or the West. So it, it were Muslims involved in this, Muslims from the subcontinent, not India. And in the same way, when you look at what happened to Azerbaijan during the Armenian war, it wasn't other Muslim countries around it. It was a particular Muslim country. They've understood the same way that the Zionist lobbies have understood. And I think that you're best qualified to talk about this, how these lobbies, they stay behind curtains. They, they pluck away, they tick away, they chip away and they create a particular type of strength. Lord Ranger recently had to apologize. Uh, and but I'm telling you that he only had to apologize because he knew that he was going to be reprimanded. That's exactly. that's, uh, that's it. I think that's as clear as day. Not because he genuinely believed what, uh, or disbelieved what he said. And that's the problem. They're pushing those boundaries, pushing those limits to see how far can they go. To And I would say that they've gone to the extent where now they are in a controlling position. Look, we've gone through Brexit. The UK has gone through Brexit. Look at the trade negotiations. It's India that has the playing cards. The, 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 as we say, hukum ka'ika. They have, they've got an ace up their sleeves that... Do you want to do trade with us? You're the ones that are suffering. You're the ones that you left the EU. You want to trade with us? Deal with it. I'm, uh, I know for a fact, again, more reports, not me uh, creating this out of thin air, that uh, uh, it, the Ministry of External Affairs specifically told the home, uh, the, the home Ministry here to stop protests against India outside the Indian High Commission. Those protests primarily are from the Khalistani community and from the Kashmiri community because they're, I mean, it, it causes outrage uh, uh, within the local population, but also inside India, it gives them a very bad impression, which then question, people start questioning the BJP government, why are you unable to control this? Remember, Preeti Patel was close to the BJP government. Yeah. I mean, this is not hidden. Um, Rishi Sunak, his father-in-law, is one of the biggest donors to the BJP government. So, we're not when we talk about militarization and we're talking about uh, the 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 way that you mentioned the changing the culture of people. It isn't just within India. They are exporting all of that to the rest of the world, making sure that they have their grips, literal grips, on uh, nations' throats. Everywhere in the world, 
that, what, what did they say? Just a couple of uh, days ago, there's a report saying that India is going to be maybe the second or third, or maybe even the first, the biggest uh, uh, um, market, sorry, not the market, the biggest economy in the next 10 years. Of course, people are going to let them get away scot-free with things. And um, when, you, when we're talking about control, we've talked about um, projection of power that India has and influence, and that's very external. But in terms of internally managing and controlling its own population and so on, um, a huge part of that, and again, you can see this taken almost uh, page for page out of the Zionist playbook, is the hijacking of a faith. Um, so just as Zionism has hijacked Judaism to the point where um, people are, Joe Blog on the street is confused, like is criticizing Israel anti-Semitic because that is what we're told so often. Um, we're also starting to see in the UK, we've seen it for ages in India, we're starting to see in India, uh, in the UK, sorry, um, the confusion of Hindutva and Hinduism. And and um, like Muzammil can tell you a lot more detail about Hindutva, but like it, it just boils down to um, a false legitimization of the government's policies against non-Hindus, and by by playing the the Hindu Hindutva equals Hinduism card, it also allows them to play the Hindu phobia card, which is um, like when we've seen situations like um, the criticism of um, Indian policies or what happened in Leicester. Um, and basically, if Muslims are involved on one side, uh, then the uh, the the Hindutva mob and goons in this country and the propaganda machine play the Hindu phobia card. Like, oh, of course, the Muslims are going to say that the Hindus in the UK are too closely tied to India because what you're doing is you're saying that every Hindu is part of a monolith. No one can think for themselves. And yet at the same time, um, you know, as an advocacy group, we we go out onto social media and we criticize Rishi Sunakri's policies, Priya Patel for her policies, uh, you know, the, what, what's going on in, uh, what had been going on in Leicester and so on. And yet the Hindutva crowd for themselves prove the fact that what the what they are trying to do in the UK is to build a close political link with what's going on in India. Why? Be, be, as as, as uh, said before, like, India needs to be seen, India's policies need to be seen as, uh, sorry, for India's policies to continue in India, they have to be hidden away by like-minded um, global powers like NATO, like the US and so on. So like in the US in particular, the Hindutva lobby has been particularly powerful. In the UK, you know, there's, there's still a lot of pushback, there's still a lot of noise by its, um, you know, its critics and so on, whether it's the Pakistani community, the Muslim community, the Kashmiri community, etc. In in the US... And let's, let's not forget, there are, there are some very powerful Hindu voices also against the Hindu uh, yeah. ideology. And again in the US, because it's it's like one of those, uh, what's the metaphor, you know, the harder you slap the water, the bigger the ripples. So in the US, by going in hard, there have been very vocal uh, anti-Hindutva Hindu voices. In the UK, um, maybe, maybe because they've been playing the slower burn, um, there are not quite as many um, anti-Hindutva Hindu voices just yet. You know, um, I've... Um, in, in the advocacy and the campaigning that we've done um, on social media, sometimes we get um, concerned Hindu uh, UK citizens reaching out to us. And they've said to, uh, and I had a phone call with one uh, the other day, and, and uh, they said that, um, I can't see an, any other Hindu organization. That's why I want to talk to you, a Muslim organization, about this. Um, but yeah, there's, there's strategies that are at play here. Um, one of them, uh, which was about... Um, 
I can't remember if it was about what happened in Leicester or if it was about a criticism of what's going on in India. Um, but basically, um, I think it was the Hindu Council or another kind of umbrella organization. They uh, they put out a letter. There were a lot of Hindu uh, Mandir temple um, signatures. signatures on it. And then some people phoned up those uh, Hindu Mandirs. They didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, they, some, some of them didn't exist. Some of them said, we didn't say to put our name on it. But now that our name is on it, you know, there's too much peer pressure to pull out because like we've seen for ourselves on the streets of India um, and we we can see for ourselves on uh, on, uh, on online on Twitter and so on that there is definitely a mob mentality, a really bloody minded mob mentality. And you can almost understand why um, Hindu Mandir um, temple management um, they just want to help their local Hindu community fulfill their rites and rituals. They don't want to have a they don't want to have a mob baying at them, um, and so on. So, uh, I mean, I, I I'm not that well versed with the geography of India. Are we talking about throughout the the subcontinent? Are we talking about certain areas where attacks and vilifications of minorities is going on? Is it one place more than the other? And what are essentially the factors? Uh, is it the more religious, more fanatically Hindu one is that they become more inclined to uh, to become Hindu? What, what is it? <laughs> the, the the strange thing is, so it's something that Ahmed said that um, to, they the way that they promote this is they claim that to be a good Hindu, you have to believe in Hindutva. You have to believe that you are a superior race. You have to believe that everybody else is beneath you. You have to believe that these people don't deserve to live. You look at the mob lynchings that happen in, in, in India. And, that, you know, we're not talking that far back. We don't, I'll only talk about what happened yesterday or the day before yesterday. Two young boys lynched to death on suspicion of carrying beef because they be, believe beef is their god. The irony is that India is the largest beef exporter in the world. So uh, when we talk about where in India, look at all the states that are controlled by the BJP and you will see uh, a, a huge, massive uh, a rise of violence against Muslims and minorities in those places. But the, the strange thing about India is that it doesn't make sense. The nation itself doesn't make sense because the North doesn't get along with the South. The East doesn't get along with the West. They are so wildly and violently different in their culture, their ethos, their religion. Everything about them is different. 2008 or 2007, there was a Chinese think tank that said that the only way for India to survive is it broke up into 30 or 40 different states. Reason being is literally the people in the South not only look different, not only think different, their religion, their form of Hinduism is different. They don't trust the people in the North because for whatever reason. There's more money in the South than there is in the North, more education in the South than there is in the North. The culture, the temperature, the climate, everything, it's equal to saying East and West. It's equal to saying black and white. That is how different they are. So how do you get all of these people together? How do you create, in your words, nationalism? Hindutva. You say to them that we are all the same. We are a superior race. So that's the one thing that binds, binds them together. And they're, in the words of Ahmed, that they're trying to uh, 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 create this imagery that, you know, you're, you're superior, everybody else is inferior, and therefore you have a right to rule by whatever means necessary. And we see that trans... And look, the biggest question really is, so what? How does, that, how does that matter to everybody else outside of India? The problem is that, uh, and forgive me if I'm bold in saying this, but look, people care about the Uyghurs. People care about the people of Yemen. People cared about the people of Iraq, of Afghanistan, of, of, of uh, Palestine, my God, of Palestine. Why? What's the common denominator? We're Muslims, right? 
What about the Muslims inside India? For that matter, what about the Muslims in Kashmir? That we've suffered for so long. And look, people in Kashmir, we warned them. We warned the Muslims inside India, let alone the rest of the world. We warned the Muslims inside India that they've come for us, they are coming for you. Look at what they've done to us. These are trials, these are experimentations. They're going to export those trials to mainland India. And they did. And what did we see? The CAA and NRC, the Citizenship Amendmentship Act and the National Register of Citizens, essentially making an... Literally, these are not my words, these are the words of qualified lawyers, qualified journalists that say that it makes people as Muslims as second-class citizens. Like, you can, be, you can be a Sikh, you can be a Jain, you can be whatever, any other religion from abroad, and they will accommodate you within, inside India. But if you're a Muslim, you get sent to a, a concentration camp. They don't call it a concentration camp. The same way the Chinese don't call them concentration camps. But they will send you to a concentration camp in Assam. Uh, and now you have... Uh, um, uh, you, you know, there's a hadith that says that there will be a time when Muslims will be afraid to say that they are Muslims. Mm. Ask the people in, in India, ask the people of Kashmir if they're afraid to say that they're Muslims or not. Because that's the situation that we're, we're in there. right now. To survive, you will but have to we're wear talking, a tika. But we're talking about what? what? We're talking about 200, 250 million Muslims? Give or take, yeah. I mean, uh, they're larger than the largest... Muslim country, the largest Muslim country. I mean, we have the most populous Muslim countries in Indonesia. Indonesia has something like, what, 300 million? So almost on par to the largest Muslim country in the world. Um, so if they get to that particular stage, I mean, what hope does the rest of us have? I mean, Gregory Stanton said genocide is imminent. Ten stages of genocide. Imminent. For the people of uh, for the Muslims inside India, but how do they get to that stage? How do you persecute, subjugate uh, uh, 250 million Muslims by keeping keeping them in slums, by uh, not offering them the same opportunities as everybody else in terms of education or career or whatever, by criminalizing them, criminalizing them by how? Beef eaters, number one. Number two, rapists, number two. Killers, number three. Uh, they hate... I mean, there is a huge list of these things that they use to criminalize. And what happens is Muslims feel that the only way to survive in this country is to be uh, more loyal than the king. So then they start, you have these... The best example of these celebrities, big, massive Muslim celebrities inside India, particularly actors, that will say that they claim to be Muslims, but at the same time, they'll do the Hindu rituals. Not Indian rituals, the Hindu rituals, which takes you completely out of the fold of Islam. But they're, some people say it's it's a necessity. It's it's a form it's of political of, naivety. It's real political naivety. Would like you say it. it's political naivety, or would you say that they have no conviction because the Muslims in Kashmir never succumbed? This is this is this is the problem that we have had as Kashmiris against the Muslims inside maybe India. Maybe because I I don't know. I mean, but but maybe because the Kashmiris had this well the sort of perceived presence of Pakistan, this the perceived pres pre presence of Pakistan. Um, maybe for that reason. I'm trying to understand because, to be honest, in terms of figures, it's very, very difficult to get your, hand, your, your head around. And, and it might seem like political naivety from where we stand, but it might be a matter of life and sorry, death sorry, to someone what, what who's, I mean, who's what, in what, that I mean, what I mean by political naivety is that the, the final warning bell for the Muslims in India um, should have been when Article 370 and 35A were repealed. Because, because straight after that, C CAA and NRC bills came in. Basically, um, Kashmir has been guaranteed a referendum. They've been guaranteed. By the United it's, Nations. No, forget the United Nations. In the Indian constitution. And there's been an, a gradual erosion of that promise um, over time. Uh, we, we did a lecture series on this a, a few years ago. And... Um, that those basically K Kashmir sh 
has always been the canary in the mine for the Muslims of India. And the and basically when the when when India annexed, they they have a, in in their own legalistic uh, framework, they have taken over uh, occupied Kashmir. They have annexed it by repealing two two parts of the Indian Constitution. What is a constitution? It's the it's the it's the soul of a nation. It's the descriptor of a nation. A nation is its constitution. They rewrote their own constitution. If the the ruling BJP were willing to rewrite the found the the fundamental definition of its own state after so seventy five years after seventy five years after gradual backpedaling anyway, but they finally did it. That is what I mean by political naivety. It's it's it it that that should have been the moment when any kind of trust in the structures of authority in India as they still are under the BJP, that trust should have evaporated then. Now, there has been, I'm not saying that every, and I, and I don't think Muzamil is saying that every um, Muslim in India is a, a, is a naive political fool, and I hope that's not being misunderstood by what I'm saying. But in terms of the, the if, if there is a, an existing, the existing institutions of power are clearly not there for the Muslims. They're there to uh, scapegoat Muslims and to continue to politically pander to the voter base of the current BJP in power. The Muslims need to have their institutions being built and they need those institutions to be supported internationally. Alhamdulillah, podcasts like this, and that's going to help raise awareness and make that happen. But it... There, there needs to be a breaking of the main obstacle, which is Indian Muslims putting nation first, because that is well, that is the root of the political naivety, a deep, deep knee jerk trust that anyone who insults India is insulting them when no, 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 when we're criticizing India, we're criticizing those who are oppressing you. And maybe it's an age thing maybe it's a generational thing you know those those who are 40 50 60 plus they've grown up believing in uh the indian dream you know we have the american dream there's the indian dream which is that we are a uh, you know we're a secular country um we are all united as indians etc cetera, etc cetera. um the dream of the founding fathers of india um but that evaporated that has evaporated i i want to talk about what's happened in leicester a couple of months ago, because that 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 I think was, you know, a, a sort of a, a siren going off to everyone uh, concerned. Um, but but since we we started talking about Kashmir, um, I've been hearing about Kashmir since I remember, and um, Kashmir is as long as the Palestinian Nakba, um, and I worked close with your late father, Ali Rahmatullah, Doctor Ayub Thakur. And um, uh, Kashmir seems on paper to be a fairly um, open shut case. It, it, it fairly simply, because like you said, I mean, the Indian constitution itself stipulates that there should be a referendum about the status of Kashmir. So where are we? I mean, now what, how many years now? 80 Sem years? 75. 75 years on? Where are we? Where, what's happening? You know, um, when we talk about constitution uh, and when we say that it's an open and shut case, they, they will hold a referendum 
Of course they'll hold a referendum. I have no doubt. But after they change facts on the ground? After they perform, they complete their settler colonial project, after they complete the genocide inside Kashmir, after they complete the uh, demographic change, no different to what is happening with the Palestinians. No different, if people remember, it's fresh in people's minds, what happened in Sheikh Jarrah. I mean, now... That gets publicity, as it should. Whatever happens in Kashmir does not. I will show you videos. I wish I could I put it on airplane mode, but I will show you videos of how they're destroying properties. A, you know, a, a college recently, an engineering college, had its, its um, land encroachment. They claim land encroachment. And this is what's going to happen. Slowly but surely, they will eliminate the Muslims from Kashmir. They will uh, uh, create such a situation where economy will not sustain um, they've started taking over land, property. I mean, look, it's already an occupation, right? It's just going to get worse. And what happens next is they'll start flooding the entire uh, uh, area with non-residents, uh, so Indians from all over India, um, and then hold a referendum, of course. And then those people that are loyal to the BJP or loyal to India, no less, uh, will vote for India. And that's the problem, that once it's Article 317.35a gave us a particular type of guarantee, even though it's not really relevant to us in the greater scheme of things of freedom and of, of right to self-determination, but it gave us a particular type of guarantee that there are non-settled, so basically settled colonialism could not happen. But India had to change, like Ahmed said, India had to change their own constitution to make sure that they could perform genocide inside Kashmir. And that's the problem. So the open and shut case is absolutely there. The only problem is that our enemies are playing dirty. But then there are, I mean, I mean, Kashmir is enabled by quite powerful Muslim nations, countries, states. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, it's Where almost unbelievable. Uh, well, you know, what are they doing? Are they just you know watching silently? Do, do they have some sort of interest? The, you know, the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario is when a particular nation uh, is used as a bargaining chip. Uh, that's the, the worst, absolutely, because you can never tell who are your enemies and who are your friends. Um, and I get the feeling that Kashmir is in that situation. And if I, if I might just add, like, there's so much nuance with Kashmir, and I'm going to explain why that there's a difference between Kashmir and Palestine, in my opinion. Like one of the nuances is um, when Bangladesh declared independence from Pakistan, the discourse of Kashmiri independence changed from being like completely Azad, completely independent or joining pa Pakistan. The discourse of, of a lot of the um, big uh, political leaders in Kashmir changed to, OK, we're going to seek autonomy under India. So Bangladesh seeking independence from Pakistan did shift um, political discourse. That, that's my understanding. Um, uh, but by having so many layers of nuance um, within the Kashmiri conversation, within the Kashmiri conversation, independent, autonomy under India, unity with Pakistan, there's nuance there. And then there's nuance in terms of like, what is the opposing side? You've got India, but then you've got Indian Muslims, you've got Congress, you've got BJP, you've got this and that. Whereas with Palestine, it's there's one side and the other side Correct. there's the palestinians Correct. Yes, who I have been native mean. for generations and then you have the european uh, settler uh, european backed settler colonial project so uh, the reason i say that is because we've tried as an organization and in conversation with other organizations as well experimented with the idea of bds has been working in palestine what how about something with india and so like one of the first campaigns we did was uh, for an export company uh, run by Muslims who donates millions of rupees 
uh, to the BJP. We thought this is a cut and dried campaign. So we launched a campaign, international campaign. Uh, we got um, a third party or someone ha ha having a little conversation with us saying that, look, it's not a donation, it's extortion. <laughs> And this is how business is done in India. So by campaigning against Muslim organizations who are donating uh, to the ruling party, it, it muddies the waters. Um, and so when it comes to what needs to be done around uh, to support the Muslims of India, the Muslims of Kashmir and so on, what we have to realize, just as Muzamma said right at the beginning, the other side, the Hindutva side, has been playing the long game. There's no quick and easy... Uh, solution there's not even a quick and easy understanding um, and so what needs to happen from those of us who support uh, justice and freedom for, for for the oppressed in India what needs to happen is we need to play the cultural shift game as well we need to there needs to be a cultural shift amongst the Muslims so I perhaps too uh, too bluntly called it political naivety, but there needs to be a, uh, a healthy skepticism growing in the Muslim Indian community and the diaspora um, about what the Indian government is doing. They say it's in the name of India, all Indians and so on. And if India is doing well, Muslims in India are doing well, that is a load of nonsense. Um, there, there needs to be a culture shift in that. There needs to be a culture shift um, as with uh, every Muslim cause um, uh, an empathy and an understanding what is happening to our ummah in this part of the world. Um, and there has to be, um, to, to, to a certain extent, um, a, a culture shift from uh, for the Muslims to help the Indians, the Hindus, sorry, who don't want to support Hindutva. Look, this is the alternative narrative. This is why you're being played. This is why you're being used. There's a political master, uh, the, there's a political class in India who's taking advantage of you um, and your networks and 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 your so on because they want to carry on uh, their cash cow going and there's you know there's reports of corruption and so on as 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 with many countries but um, um, yeah sorry uh, it 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 just comes down to Muslims understanding and institutionalizing the the response and to the to, in a response to the need of what's uh, happening over there. I mean it's. Um... The, the understanding is and, and being aware of, of a cause is is the very first step towards doing anything about it. Um, and yet, despite this cause being probably at the at the very heart of uh, of Muslims around the world's dua every Friday, for instance, but I would I would suggest, and from my own perspective, um, that the understanding of the details and the understanding of the facts. Um, is quite uh, is quite uh, you know short it's quite short in terms of delivery um who, you know I, we're talking about kashmir now but we can also mention a number of other cases that are of the same whose fault is it i mean why is it that um people muslims around the world who pray for kashmir um but don't know the facts and the realities of kashmir Whose fault is that? I mean, how do how do we overcome this particular issue? How do we inform Muslims of what's happening? Who is the spokesperson or spokes platform for the Muslims of Kashmir? That's been one 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 bone of contention, I have to say, because uh, th there seems to be at sometimes either none or at sometimes several. So, uh, so, so this is something that that I you know I'd like to I'd like to understand, but at the same time. 
um, it's uh, it's crucial to understand the geopolitics. My question about okay, so what's Pakistan doing? What's Bangladesh doing? Although you know, in in the case of Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, we we realize the nature of the state itself, but but in Pakistan we have a nuclear power, and we have an arch enemy, if there were any, uh, to to India, an enemy like no other, almost uh, on an exist existential level. So why is Pakistan so absent? from the narrative that is uh, that is Kashmir? That's a lot to unpack when it comes to Pakistan. Um, they've had financial uh, uh, problems in terms of the FATF, so they were blacklisted. Um, so certain payments and certain trade could not happen. Second thing is that Pakistan has a lot of internal terrorism as well, perpetuated by India. I mean, they've, they've caught at least one Kulbushan uh, Yadav. He was a spy that uh, instigated terror acts inside Balochistan. That's one that we know of. There must be plenty more. Uh, recently, we've seen the rise of the TTP, the Tehrik Taliban Pakistan. That's another problem. Um, post 9 11, the American interest in Afghanistan and how that influences Pakistan as well. Uh, recently, with Russia and how that, uh, Russia and Ukraine, what side Pakistan needs to take and how that's going to affect uh, their trade relations everywhere else in the world. Uh, the, it seems, unfortunately, that you, uh, my dad used to say that until you strengthen yourself, you cannot help the people around you. So become strong, then you can help others. If you have nothing, what are you going to offer? In the same way, Pakistan has been trying to strengthen itself from day one. Um, look, it's, it's, what is it? It's 75 years old. It's been carved out of, of, the, of the subcontinent. It's not something that has been around for centuries and, and, and eons. They're still figuring themselves out how to run a country as well, um, how to democratize people, um, how to work in terms of economically and, and culturally to assimilate to one another. Because in the same way as India, you have Punjab, you have KPK, the, the people of the Pashtuns. It, it, it's also a, um, a hotpot of different cultures and ethnicities. And of course, as a nation, that a Muslim, the only Muslim nation that has a nuclear weapon, it is also constantly being derided. It's constantly being poked at, prodded, even though that it's been one of the most, uh, one of the primary uh, uh, nations that other Muslim nations go to when it requires help and assistance, be it in technology, be it in security, whatever it may be. Now, we as Kashmiris have many, many qualms with Pakistan, many, many critiques of Pakistan out of love because we consider them as brothers. But we understand what their problems are. The primary problem is with the rest of the Muslims around the world that don't have those problems. Um, I mean, we have, what is it, more than 50 OIC countries, organized Islamic countries. What do they do? The largest block, exactly. the largest political block in the world. Large in what sense? Like population or Well, 51 GDP countries, or? population, okay. Okay. resources, okay. numbers even. I mean, besides the United Nations, they, they come second. So yeah. after the United Nations, it comes second. But the, look... The, the Gambia, on the advice and the work that's been put in the OIC, took the issue of the, of the uh, uh, Rohingya yeah. to the ICC, or was it the ICJ? But nobody else seems to take the issues of Kashmir, or for that matter, the Muslims inside India. You have some Kuwaiti lawyers that have started lobbying. In fact, they were part of that BDS uh, movement that happened. So it's really about interest. It's really about, uh, like... We mentioned the long game that India has played, that they have so many people in the Middle East, particularly these Muslim area, Muslim countries that have money, that if they if they threaten to withdraw that manpower, that labor power from those countries, and what skills. would happen? And yeah. skills, yeah, most yeah. importantly, the skills, because this is another thing that we that we've seen is that a lot of these soft skills, uh, even technical skills, that 
Muslim countries have come from abroad. And in the beginning, it used to be from other Muslim countries like Pakistan or Bangladesh or whatever. Now it's primarily from India. Reason being, cheaper labor. And that's what India has been has, has played, and that's what we have fallen for. That because of that cheap labor, now you have become so totally and utterly dependent on it. And those people are so utterly independent on it, or rather loyal to India, that at the drop of a hat, if they left because their leaders told them to, what would those Muslim countries do? They have come to the point, these Muslim countries, that they have built lavish temples. And they go to those temples. You may have seen those videos and photos. I don't, I'm not going to name them. But they go to those uh, temples and they perform the same rituals as those Hindus do. Muslims wearing the traditional Arabic clothing, speaking the traditional Arabic language that the rest of the people in the it's subcontinent... The tool. And it's that's the, the problem. <laughs> they have become tools of Hindutva without knowing it. They have been used for so long they don't realize it. And that's that's where, uh, when we talk about that, whose fault is this, it's everybody's fault. Collectively, everybody's fault. Primarily, of course, people that in the diaspora that haven't been able to go to uh, Anas, haven't been able to go to Ahmed, haven't been able to go to Al Hawar TV and say to them, this is the issue of Kashmir, let us work on this together. Uh, uh, maybe we need to draw more parallels to the Rohingya, to the Palestinians, to other movements. But here's my question. Do we really need to create parallels with other suffering Muslims? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, we, do I need to, to, to exactly? Get, it's suffering of a to Muslim. To get people riled up. Okay, listen. How all of that is, and uh, you know, with, with, with much proviso, uh, there's, there's understandable, okay? So it's not entirely, but okay, fine. Uh, there are certain politics to be understood and, uh, and a certain... Um, uh, issues to be unpacked and what's happened in the UK? How has Hindutva taken such a grip on cities like Leicester? Leicester. Which, by the way, only a few years ago, I recall reading in the Times that Leicester was one of the most diverse, one of the most multicultural, multi-religious, multi-ethnic cities in the UK and hence thriving. What has happened to make Leicester, of all cities, Leicester to make it the sort of base for, for what's happened two months ago? Yeah, so when I've had conversations with um, activists in Leicester, who pe people who know uh, what's been going on on the ground, what, what they've explained is that um, not exactly a long game as if um, there was an uh, objective in mind, but kind of like the way... Uh, the the way the dice have falled is that has <laughs> fell um is that like over generations um the firstly there was a large indian community in leicester um and so for the long for a long time uh, there, was, yeah, no need, there was no need been, for friction so there's, there's always been a, a large indian community yeah so so when i say that i mean I, what i mean by that is that um there was unity along those lines um so indian muslims indian hindus they're indian yeah, yeah, and 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 they, and they get along and so on. But the way things have fallen into place is that the Muslim community had a focus on commerce, you know, opening up shops and businesses and so on, and the Hindu community had a focus on getting into politics and so on. So, um, you know, when you look at um, the the Leicester community that's involved in like local or higher levels of government, you're going to see a, a lot of Hindu representation there. And um, what that means is that. Um, when it comes to having political cover, um, if those same Hindu councillors do 
subscribe uh, to uh, Hindutva ideology or maybe it's political convenience. Maybe they've got a relative or another uh, political colleague uh, back in India and between the two of them they've got a dynamic which strengthens their voter base in their constituencies, whatever reasons, whether it's ideologically Hindutva, whether it's politically convenient um, um, marketeering, there's just a, a strong dynamic um, uh, going on in, in that situation. And what's been happening for years um, is that, and, and you know, this really became a flashpoint in the 2019 um, election, um, was that there, there were situations where, for example, Labour um, put the Kashmir issue forward. Um, after quite a bit of lobbying, you know, they they said that they wanted to become independent, uh, you know, put put the idea independent of their policies, and then there was a lot of lobbying to bring um, Labour's point of view again towards, you know, um, uh, freedom and justice for Kashmir. And then what that did for a lot of Hindu communities across the UK um, is that that put the the Hindutva lobby into overdrive. Look at Labour. A vote for Labour is a vote for Muslims. Look at all the Muslims voting for Labour. You have to vote for the Conservatives. And that started to, uh, sorry, that didn't start to, but that deepened any sense of entrenchment, political entrenchment um, across the UK. So what happened in Leicester, sorry, just a bit of context. So um, that meant that there's now a political entrenchment um, coming from India um, into the Hindu community in places like Leicester. Um, and then you'd have um, situations where they look like flashpoints, but they're more like symptoms rather than a cause. Um, so, for example, a, a cricket match between Pakistan and India, and you know there there was clashes on the streets, people getting injured, and that I only mentioned the cricket match because that was given as an excuse. Exactly, yes. That was that given was as the official an line. Yeah, I mean, in all the news reports was following the 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 cricket match between India and Pakistan. Even even though, like I said, m it, like hin Hindus and Muslims in uh, Leicester are mainly uh, of Indian heritage, and also um, like the main person who got beaten up um, after the cricket match was a Sikh guy. So you know, it's it's a real desperate. It was a real desperate attempt to try to fob off. A deeply entrenched issue as a sort of like yeah it's just sport hooligans um having too much fun um after a sports match but then things built up and built up and even though there was attempts by the local muslim community to point out to the local police authorities that look these are our concerns this is what needs to happen we're seeing more and more of of uh of this uh, this hindutva ideology seeping into um and poisoning the the relationships that we've had as a general um indian indian diaspora community you know, that all fell on deaf ears or maybe ignorant ears. Maybe, you know, um, the police authorities just weren't clued up enough on what is going on in the communities they're supposed to police. And then um, things kicked off um, in Leicester when um, when certain Muslims were being targeted and then there was a sort of a demand that there should be people on the streets to respond and then things escalated on both sides and then the the Hindu community were of course being like backed and organized by um by resources from india and so um one of the clearest manifestations of that was when hundreds of uh of hindu men masked up um started a street march that was deliberately going into a muslim majority area in leicester and the fact that they all had masks on obviously meant that they are very hard to photograph they are very hard 
for the police to follow up for questioning they weren't and being, so on. Uh, playing it safe by corona standards were they <laughs> uh, well i mean going out for a long walk with hundreds of people into different parts of town it's probably not the cleverest thing to do for avoiding a pandemic um but obviously when they reached their um uh, their finishing line um they're in this uh there's a lot of muslims in that area and you know have no idea what's going on there's been uh there's next to no policing going on um so there's no real crowd control so what do the residents of the area do they have to come out on the streets and you yeah. know and they're, they're when not... there's when there's community strife when there's uh, a lot of let's say mistrust when there's uh, discomfort when there's anxiety intimidation feeling of intimidation anything can trigger it i recall um, many years ago about 15 16 years ago when there was an incident in an austrian uh, whether it was Vienna or Graz, I, I can't remember. Um, an incident over um, uh, a Turkish gentleman who went into a kebab shop run by a Turkish Kurd. He didn't like the sandwich and he assumed that something was put in his in his uh, on purpose. And that started, you know, a fight in the town center and uh, one or two people got, got knived and so on and so forth. Meaning that uh, sometimes the actual trigger could be something menial, could be something which is extremely irrelevant, very, very negligible. But, but, kind of but raises... since the, the the base is there, the foundation for such strife is, is there, and some play at it. But then the question is, who has that strife? Was it the Muslims? Do Muslims fundamentally have a problem with Hindus? I mean, because let's let's be frank, people don't really people aren't really about aware aware about Hindutva. On a general level, I, I, I have to say I wasn't. Yeah, that, I mean, okay, I yeah, would describe. I mean, knowing geopolitics, I would describe Narendra Modi as a, a very unpleasant person. I knew way before the BBC documentary. I knew about his role in the Gujarat uh, massacres. Exactly. So, so I, I disliked him for his rhetoric, for his politics, for his. But at the same time, he was democratically elected by a landslide the second time round after it came to light. That he might have had a hand in the Gujarat strikes. So, so no. Well, let, let's, but be, let's be honest. Let's very remember, first time I heard. Let's that. remember, Modi was banned from traveling to the United States because of the Gujarat uh, massacre. But coming back to, to 2019, at that, let, let's leave 2022 after the BBC documentary. In 2019, I don't think people were clued up about Hindutva, let alone Hindus. I think the community. When I mean people, I mean Muslims, particularly in Leicester. Because they've lived together for what decades, decades. Right? They've had good relations, and and a lot of the culture is probably similar. They probably Correct. share each other's samosas. Correct. They have their jalebis and whatnot. So the question is, if the Muslims didn't have a problem with the Hindus for so long, and pe the Hindus will say, well, neither did we. But here's the question: Do Hindus fundamentally have a problem with Muslims? The proof is in the pudding. The proof is, is what's what's happening inside India right now. That pre BJP. Uh, so-called uh, uh, um, uh, communal harmony existed inside India, uh, to whatever extent you want to call it, but it's compared to what it is now, communal harmony exists inside India before the BJP. Same thing in the UK, communal harmony. BJP comes into power and suddenly there's communal discord. Why? It can't be just out of a coincidence. It seems that with the rise of the BJP, the innate temptation or the innate nature of Hindus is Hindutva. I mean, I know that we've discussed, and I know Ahmed, you um, and you're absolutely right. We should separate Hindu Hinduism from Hindutva, but it's not us that are trying to blur the two. It's them that are blurring the two by claiming Hindu phobia if you're anti anti Hindutva. So, in my opinion, 
and I could be completely off the mark, which I doubt that I am, but in my opinion, the Hindus, majority of Hindus, I won't say all of them, but majority of Hindus in the UK, because they haven't spent enough time inside India, they still feel that to be a loyal Indian means to be loyal to the BJP government or loyal to the existing government as it, as it is. And if the existing government inside India, let's be honest, look, uh, um, I'm from a particular heritage from the Asian background. I watch Asian channels. A person from Africa or from, from any part of it is going to watch their local, same with Arabs. Same with Indians. They are going to watch their, their, their new channels, Republic, Times Now, CNN, NDTV, all of these different channels. And what do they spout? constant anti-Muslim narratives. These people are inundated with information from their home country where they are still loyal to that Muslims are the problem. So over the last several years, they've been looking at their neighbors with a bit of a sly eye that, you know, he's a Muslim. And worse still, he's a Pakistani Muslim. And Pakistan is the arch enemy of India. I think that it's been festering. They have been pumped knowingly or unknowingly India have directly been targeting the diaspora in the UK, in the US, everywhere else in the world to make sure that these people are on our side. Put them into power, as you said, that while everybody else was doing commerce, the Muslims were doing commerce, these people were being put into power. That tomorrow you have the likes of Rishi Sunak in power, you have the likes of Preeti Patel in power, you have uh, you know other people in power, so that they can start controlling things. And it's not just the UK. This is an example because we're here. Look at the US, look at uh, Nikki Haley, look at what was her name? Uh, the 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 oh, from Hawaii. I can't remember her name right. It's completely off the top of my head. Um, look at her. Look at what's happening in the Mauritius. Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, yes. Look at what's happening in the Mauritius. Or yes, Mauritius. Or is it the Maldives? I always get mixed up. I mean, the the Indian the, the amount in Indonesia, the Indian uh, um, uh, power that exists there. In Malaysia, I've been to Malaysia two three times. I um, and. Dr. Mahathir, for whatever the politics, of, I mean, we're not talking about their personal politics and their leadership. Dr. Mahathir, Anwar Ibrahim, all the other Islamist parties, strong uh, Muslim supporters. But you can't do any lobbying in these countries because of the power of the Indian uh, people. Leave the, leave the governments, these people. And where are they influenced from? Their home countries. And that's what, what my well, where do is. Where do uh, international human rights organizations such as Amnesty Human Rights Watch? Amnesty is banned in India. Yeah. Wow. Because of a Kashmiri, by the way. <laughs> okay. So amnesty... Well, uh, that that might be your leverage. I mean, that might be the leverage in order to get across the case for uh, for, for, for Kashmir to people who are unwilling to, to hear from anywhere For else. that matter, even for the Muslims in India, I, I won't specify because it's only the Muslims in Kashmir, but generally speaking, here's the problem with uh, amnesty or human rights watch. They observe things from a political angle. Even though they claim they're human rights, they yeah. so when they talk about... What's happening in Palestine, they'll say both sides. The same narrative as we see what the government says. They don't talk about that there is a David and a Goliath. And with, with the Muslims inside India, with Kashmir, it's the same thing that human rights atrocities must end and the Indian government have been uh, very forceful with the people of Kashmir and they haven't been able to assimilate them. Our problem has not been assimilation. So you, you immediately, you're changing the narrative. You know, it's amnesty could do better. Whether they want to do better, whether this is some kind of conspiracy, I don't know. But you're absolutely right that this is leverage as long as the right people are there that we can educate. Maybe they have a lack of education, as you pointed out, or maybe there is a conspiracy against the Muslims. And uh, frankly, everything that I'm looking at right now feels like there's a conspiracy against Muslims.